You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. John McWhorter back. How you doing, man? I'm good, Glenn. How are you doing? I'm doing very well indeed. I am Glenn Lowry. This is the Glenn Show at Substack.com. We move from Patreon to Substack. Everybody, GlennLowry.Substack.com. You can find my newsletter and you can find this podcast. And uh, John and I are still every other week and once a month on the Q&A. I interview other people on the off weeks and John doesn't have time for me. <laughs> other people like Cornell West, uh, who my interview with him and Teodros Kiros, a philosopher, uh, went up for the inaugural Substack post for the podcast um, on Monday. We we're speaking here on Friday uh, and it has been well received. And next Monday, uh, it'll be me and John. But the Monday after that, it's going to be me and Charles Murray, John. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. We're off to a a good start here at the the new uh, version. This is the Glenn Show 3.0 now, uh, Substack version of the Glenn Show. But in any case, I'm with John McWhorter. We are the black guys at whatever platform that we occupy. Uh, Our beat is, amongst other things, uh, race and American culture. And uh, John, you've been weighing in recently to that effect. Uh, I saw your uh, post on... Princeton University's classics department mm-hmm. uh, deciding not to require that students be uh, acquainted with Greek and Latin and read the text in the original languages, but nevertheless can major in classics at Princeton without mastering Greek and Latin. You seem mm-hmm. to have a problem with that. Is that mm-hmm. a sign of the times? What, what's up with that? Well, um, I'm going to first say about Substack that for those of you who by some chance might also follow my Lexicon Valley podcast. I am moving that from Slate to Substack very soon. So I hope you will um, follow me there. In any case, yeah, it's interesting you bring up the whole Princeton case because it actually relates to the Charles Murray issue, which is that, you know, there is perhaps a justification for thinking, do students who delve in the grand old classical text really need to know Latin and Greek. And there's no doubt that to really understand them in a masterful way, to understand them completely, to really participate in discussion, you do have to know Latin and or Greek. But the question is, is the effort worth it, especially on the undergraduate level? I completely understand that. It's it's kind of disappointing, but, you know, I'm a language nerd. So there's a part of me that kind of salivates at the idea of learning Latin or Greek. But I know that's not everybody as my colleague Graham Wood has said in the Atlantic. But this is the issue. Princeton is doing this not just because it wants to bring in more majors. That's a problem that all classics departments have. Princeton is doing this after June 2020. And the documentation, the statements make it very clear that they're doing this with Black people in mind. You know, all the language is there, all the DEI kind of language underrepresented, you know, welcoming, all of that is in the statement and what it means, what they all but say this means is that they've decided that it's a white supremacist business to require Latin or Greek. And so you can just see that I I doubt if it was ever said, but you can see those white professors sitting there and saying, well, if we're going to have more black students in the major, we have to stop requiring people who are on the real 
analytical track that we have to know Latin and Greek. It's white supremacists to impose that on them. And you can see all of them pretending to actually think that's true. And yeah, I do mean that. I'm sorry. Pretending to actually think that's true. And you, you don't told, think they believe it. I'm sorry. Excuse me for interrupting. You think no, they're insincere when they say that. I think they are showing that they are not racist, but I don't think they genuinely believe that it's white supremacist to ask a black person to learn a language like Latin or Greek. They've learned to pretend that. And I can put myself in their position. Problem with it is, though, that if the idea is that we're going to suspend the requirement to know Latin or Greek to do this because of black people, we're in trouble because in about 10 minutes, everybody is going to be screaming and yelling about Charles Murray and his airing the idea that we're not as bright. Everybody's going to be screaming at you for even entertaining him. That's going to be the big thing. How dare you this white supremacist that uncle Tom that. Okay. How about that? I have no respect no respect. That sound like you. I have no respect for anybody who is going to jump all over Charles Murray for saying that black people aren't as intelligent while sitting there with their hand on their heart, saluting the idea that classics gets rid of the requirement for learning Latin or Greek out of the idea that it's too much to expect of black people. No respect, direct contradiction. All of this is implying that black people just aren't as bright, that we can't be subjected to real challenge, that it's white supremacist. I'm sorry. So that is my problem with this Princeton decision. You want to talk about suspending that requirement? Great. But talk about it when you're not talking about black people. And so I'm, I'm disgusted. I, I don't like the idea that the way you show you're not a racist is to deny us sincere challenge. What do you think of that? Okay, let me let me play the devil's advocate. Uh, this would be my untutored version of the case why you might consider the modernizing step of relaxing this uh, conventional uh, requirement of engaging these texts, uh, the great text of the Greek and uh, Roman heritage uh, in their na- in their mother tongue in their native tongue in the language in which they were written. Why you might consider relaxing that. There are excellent translations available. 200 years ago, you couldn't really engage these texts without being able to understand the language because I'm, I'm just speculating. I, I imagine there's something to this. There weren't so many or even any excellent translations available, especially not in all the languages that might be wanting to encounter these texts. Um, there are excellent uh, translations available. It's an, it's a, time-worn tradition. It's a rite of passage. It's, a, it's an initiation rite, really, to force people to learn these languages. And I could understand that in the Italian Renaissance, but I don't understand it in the 21st century. Um, so it's very, very Western, isn't it? Latin and Greek. It re-emphasizes uh, uh, the... Um, uh, fiction that the human civilization rests upon a Western foundation. Uh, it is not only Europe that we should be looking to as the bedrock of our, uh, of our understanding of the world. Uh, so for all of these reasons, this uh, uh, move is, is really an overdue modernization of the, the, you know, training of scholars to reflect upon the, uh, classical traditions of 
of human uh, inquiry and, and knowledge and so on. And, and so we relax it. It does have the additional benefit of uh, making our study more accessible to populations where the mastering of Latin and Greek doesn't come as second nature or they don't have the background. They didn't study Latin or Greek in high school or whatever. So um True, it does uh, make us more accessible to these populations that are underrepresented. But the main reason we're doing it is because we're in the 21st century now, not the 19th century. And um, there, there's it's it's a hoop that we don't need to ask our students to jump through. And if it actually uh, widens the uh, source of you know people flowing in to study these great uh, works, then uh, why not do it? What I would liken it to, I'll stop because I'm playing the devil's advocate here is the argument that you hear in economics in my discipline about us being too mathematical. Why do I have to study all of this head busting statistical, mathematical, technical stuff when, you know, there's a great tradition of inquiry and economics going back centuries in which, uh, you know, a literary and historical and ethnographic and, and case study type, uh, uh, information was uh, drawn on in order to the, the, the traditions of political economy. Adam Smith didn't write down equations. David Ricardo didn't write down equations. Karl Marx didn't write down equations. They were able to, you know, generate insights into the economy and so on without having all of this formal apparatus. Uh, and it is also true that uh, the technical requirements make economics less accessible to populations that don't score high on the GREQ. Uh, that's an added benefit, but economics would be a better discipline if it weren't so in our mood of its mathematical obscurantism. Uh, likewise, the classics could be a more vital discipline. Maybe the engagement with the contemporary world uh, would be enhanced and so forth if you if you didn't make people jump through these hoops, that that's my, in, my version of, you know, what, what an argument for this move might be. All that is gorgeous. And I would be quite open to it, but not when it's done within a context of saying, we're going to do all these things so that we can get more black kids. in. that just, that just won't do. If you're going to talk about more kids. Okay. And of course, some of the way they're putting it implies that that's what they were thinking about. But given the timing and given they're saying that all this is more urgent in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, this is being presented basically as them showing how racially enlightened they are. And the idea that not as many kids come in with Latin and Greek, I get that, but it's not 1950. It's been that way for a very long time with all kinds of kids. It's not that only black kids are the ones that don't get Latin and Greek in high school. I didn't. And I went to very fine private schools in the 70s and 80s. That's a, you know, that, that horse is long out of the barn. The idea is that you come to Princeton as a freshman, you start taking classes in, in Latin and Greek, and then you move on and you decide to major in classics. There's an idea here that it's somehow unblack to imagine a black student doing that. You're a freshman, and one of your many classes is one where you're learning amo, amas, amat. And if there's any sense among black students that that's somehow inauthentic, it should be discouraged. It should not be encouraged. And I also don't like the taste of this because let's say you're going to bring in more diverse perspectives. What does that mean with black students? What's the diverse thing? Slavery. What that really is shorthand for is that black students will have interesting things to say about the subordination aspect of those societies. And my question is, what? 
what are the interesting things that a black kid, you know, 19 years old, grew up in Cleveland? What does she have to say about slavery that the white girl sitting right next to her might not say as well? What is the precious insight? And beyond subjugation, beyond life being difficult, what other vibrant contributions are are we expected to make? It's it's really all about just us being there as part of the diversity tableau. It's people trying to show that they get it. It's people trying to show that they're, quote unquote, doing the work. I sympathize with how it must feel to be them, but I feel that they are unintentionally condescending to black intellect. I just can't help thinking of W.E.B. Du Bois. Yes, that's a different world, but he knew his Latin. He knew his Greek. And imagine telling him, you know, you you didn't need to do that. What we're really interested in hearing is how you feel about what it must have been like to be a slave in ancient Rome. Be vibrant for us, you know, William. That, no, no. So, yeah, I I, I feel this. And I'm surprised at how much noise this has made. I didn't know people were going to be this interested in the subject, but this is, and I'm very close to them. It's part of a general pattern. This is the firefighters who had NAACP lawyers behind them 15 years ago saying that we don't do as well on the exam that you have to take to become a firefighter. So we should eliminate the test because it's racist. This is the whole Stuyvesant public school in New York where to get into a few of the top public schools, you have to take a nasty little test. If black kids don't do well on the test, then you eliminate the test and call that anti-racism. No, I stand athwart and I say no. And I feel that I am speaking for black people, not against black people, even if a lot of them don't know it. This shit's got to go. Okay. You don't want the standards lowered in order to accommodate diversity. Yeah. You think that the lowering of the standards is an implicit statement of a lack of confidence in our capacity to do what others have done. It is. Uh, you think this is a smokescreen. It's a cover story. The story that I just gave about how we're in the 21st century and there's no, we got very good translations and uh, it, you know, we're, we're modernizing it for everybody, not just for our minority students. They're just uh, doing it for us. <laughs> you, you, you think that they look at the black students and they are fear that if they were to hold up a common standard and they say, you know, learn Latin and Greek, that's what we do. We call it the classics. It's been like that for 500 years. Learn Latin and Greek. You want to play? Learn Latin and Greek. That they think we fall, fall flat on our faces. It's a, it's a kind of bigotry of low expectations about black people, you think tacitly they agree with Charles Murray, your version of Charles Murray. I don't think you would be quite fair to Charles Murray, but we can go into that. But uh, since I'm going to be talking with Charles Murray here at the Glenn show in a week, uh, we may want to go into it. But in any case, you're thinking that tacitly these uh, friends of blacks are quote unquote friends are, are really closet racists who think that black people are intrinsically not up to the task that others have shown themselves to be up to. I'm not going to call them racist for that, but I think a lot of them are afraid of that. Or some of them, it might be something even more benign. They just think that it's inauthentic to expect a black kid to learn Latin or Greek. A lot of them are probably really into the black thing. A lot of them probably think black people are really cool. And they're thinking about Afropunk and Spike Lee's latest movie, and they like their hip hop, and they think all this, this is just great. And they're thinking, why should... Any black kid have to deal with amo, amas, ama. That kid should be over on the other side of campus learning Swahili. And if he's going to do classics, then he's going to come in and he's going to tell us about how our discipline is white supremacist. That's that black person's job. And that person feels that as the most advanced kind of thought. I, I get it. They think of themselves as on black people's side. The problem is that what they think isn't true. 
That's not on black people's side. That's infantilization. And I don't know whether they really know it deep down, but it, it won't do. And I think black people need to stand up against this sort of thing when they're in a position. Well, to I'm wondering that. why we don't. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm imagining, I don't know, 100 years ago, um, immigrants from Eastern Europe or Southern Europe, Italian, Jewish, wanting to break through into the American establishment, uh, seeing this implacable wasp power structure that looked down on them because their food was too garlicky or they were speaking <laughs> Yiddish or whatever it might be. And my understanding was that uh, these uh, outsiders sought to get in. Their noses were pressed against the candy store window. They saw the goodies on the inside and they wanted to prove themselves worthy. And, and, and they embraced the challenge of, as it were, learning Latin and Greek or, as it were, learning higher mathematics so as to be good economists. They embraced that challenge. I think of Paul Samuelson, the founding father in some sense of mathematical study and economics coming out of the 1930s, a Jewish kid from Gary, Indiana, who got to Harvard and blew everybody away with his brilliance, but was still a Jewish kid from Gary, Indiana, and he wasn't invited into the inner sanctum and proved his bona fides by out mathematic, out mathematicizing the mathematicizers, as it were. Um, So there's another way to go for us. I'm wondering why we don't take it, which is rather than challenging the standards of performance, to embrace the standards of performance and to demonstrate our bona fides by excelling at the standard. Don't take away the markers that I was going to use to illustrate to you that not only am I as good as you are, actually, I can beat you at your own game. So is it not only the Dons at Princeton who lack confidence in their BIPOC population's capacity to master Greek and Latin? Is it perhaps also we, the sons and daughters of the Black American middle class, the most privileged and richest and powerful group of African-descended people ever to have lived? You know, I'm talking about the sons and daughters of the Black American middle class. Is it we who lack uh, confidence in our capacity? Maybe we believe your version of Charles Murray, that we're just not up to it. Don't test us. We can't get it done. I am inclined to think that what we are to think is just that the way white people do things is distasteful, that it's inauthentic, that it's not us. It just doesn't smell good. But the problem is, this is a question that I don't think is being answered amidst our current assumptions. And that is... Suppose the new thing is that, no, that Jewish immigrant isn't going to learn Latin or formal English or how to do math, that that was unreasonable, that was barbaric, that this imposition of certain, you know, anti-Macassar white standards, that was something from the old days. And now we're going to get on to something different. There's a blackness, for example, that we want to work with. And so no standardized tests, no math with the economics, you know, do, do the kind that doesn't require math. But you notice that all those things that we're not supposed to do are always hard. You know, Latin and Greek from English are are hard. No Latin or Greek too hard. I mean, frankly, Swahili is easier than those languages. And folks, remember, on this one little narrow thing, if we're going to talk about blackness, I do have expertise. And Swahili is much easier than Latin or Greek, period. That's true. So not Latin or Greek, not something hard like that, but, you know, something that happens to be easier. And the problem is, 
if you're not going to do this white stuff because it's inauthentic and it's, it's white supremacist, what is it that we're supposed to do? What is, what is the black thing? And I swear to God that I get the feeling that the idea is that we're just supposed to sit around being intuitive. I almost want to say, what are, are these people thinking blackness is if it isn't precision and challenge? Is it dancing and sports? Literally. Is it that black people are good entertainers and that black people are good at, at, at basketball? Because I can't think of what else it would be. And if that's what it is, if the idea is that we're supposed to use our bodies and that we're supposed to sit around having casual conversations and exhibit community, you know, this idea that Africans are unique and, you know, focusing on communities, if there are any people in the world who don't focus on community, are we supposed to be a community? What's the community going to accomplish? I'm not sure people have an answer to that. So intuitive economics, intuitive physics, what? And so I just worry that people are so caught up in this idea of rejecting the boring whiteness, the imposition, the hegemony, that they're not thinking, well, what else are you going to do? What would you invent? How would you make the world better? And beyond singing and playing basketball and looking good, I'm not sure what it's supposed to be. Do you know what it's supposed to be? Like, for example, if we dumb down all the disciplines and get rid of the hard stuff, what's the black version? You know, music theory that isn't about music theory. So there's black music theory. What is it? Beating drums? I yeah, just, you're, you're asking the wrong guy. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking two things. I'm thinking, first of all, the inhabitants of antiquity of the of the ancient world of uh, Greece and Rome were not white. <laughs> they, they they weren't white. They were they were Greco-Roman. They're they were brown, Mediterranean, but they weren't white. That it makes no sense. That's an anachronism. That's projecting something backward millennia and imposing it on a structure where it made no sense. Uh, the other thing I'm thinking is that we descendants of Africans who now live in the modern West are not Africans. We, we're Westerners. Our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, et cetera, et cetera. English is my mother tongue. It was my mother's mother tongue. It was her mother's mother tongue, et cetera. I'm as close to... I don't know, Tolstoy, Shakespeare, Cicero, uh, as I am to anybody who ever wrote, if they wrote, Swahili or spoke in the oral tradition of Swahili. This is my world. The West is my world. So there's something very artificial about the identitarian move that's being made here, where we take the corpus of human culture, which we inherit in the 21st century, and we parse it and chop it up and, and hand it out to uh, our contemporaries uh, based upon categories of racial identity, which made no sense in the times in which they uh, uh, these texts that we have inherited from the ancients uh, were, were actually written. Uh, so, so I, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not into it. They say, is there a black economics? I mean, you know, how could there be a, a black economic, there are a set of questions that may be of more interest to certain people in virtue of their identity. You can pursue those questions, but the methods by which you assess the evidence that bears on those questions, by which you construct conceptual frameworks to articulate and interrogate those questions, uh, those methods are, are universal. They're, they're not, uh, they, they don't adhere to a particular culture or a particular way of seeing the world. Um, and I think Here's the other thing that's going on. We are in the 21st century, after all. And guess what forces are dominating 
the large global dynamic of the 21st century. They're coming out of East Asia. Those people are not Europeans. Last time I checked, the Chinese were not Europeans. They, they usually they, are. Last time <laughs> I checked, they had their own history going back, of co- culture going back thousands of years. Uh, and the last time I checked, they were all over Caltech. They, they were all over MIT. And if they're doing the classics, I'm sure they're reading Latin and Greek. Okay. Mm-hmm. In, in other words, they didn't stop being Chinese by understanding that the modern world is the modern world. They rather made it their business to master the modern world. We're always going to be subordinate. We're always going to have our hand out. We're always going to be like a bunch of kids in the corner throwing a tantrum, threatening to pull the house down if we don't get our way. Unless we man up and woman up to the challenges of the modern world. I think learning Greek and Latin when you're studying the classics is one of those challenges. I think the STEM disciplines is the uh, arena in which a lot of those challenges are being confronted by modern people who want to grow up and be effective in the world in which we live in. So if we don't surrender the shtick, my great, 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 great word, we're enslaved going back 400 years. White supremacy has done me wrong. I'm entitled to reparations. What, you know, I, you know uh, if we don't surrender it and man up and woman up to the challenges of the modern world, we're going to be dependent on the largesse and the beneficence uh, and the generosity and the sympathy and the pity of white people for another 400 years. You know, it's... um really grisly that um, our current dialogue, which encourages a smart Black person to focus on this victimhood, means that often, in my experience, I I see this a lot. People write to me about it. I see it on social media. I've been minted amidst it. There's a sense that if a Black person does start working at doing these white things, you know, using the kind of reasoning that you're expected to engage in as a graduate student in a typical discipline, for example. If they get criticized, they think it's racism. It's, they, they, they can't imagine that the criticism might be that they just need to get better at what they were doing, and they're encouraged to think of it that way. And I, I worry about that because then what you get is, well, yeah, I tried to man up, I tried to woman up, but I had all this racism coming at me from the faculty, and I just couldn't stand it anymore. And I can see how they would process it that way because there's so many people telling them that that's what it must be. When really it's just that doing the proper work sometimes means that you have to be told that you're doing it wrong. I remember when I was a grad student, I was learning how to make an argument in linguistics. Some of it is rather lawyerly. We, we, it's problem sets. It's a kind of closer reasoning than I think many people have any reason to know linguistics is about. And when I went in, as I told you, I was undertrained at first, and I was trying to do my thing, and I wasn't doing it quite up to the standards of what linguists really do. And I had gotten to the point where I was working out my dissertation proposal and I gave a talk to the department on what I was doing. And, you know, I was, I was smart and I talked good, et cetera. But there were a couple of people, white men, who gently but firmly let me know that I wasn't really up to snuff and that in order to make these arguments in a way that other linguists were really going to listen to, instead of enjoying the way I talk and welcoming me because I, I'm a pretty color. They didn't say that. I don't think they were thinking that, but 
If you're black in academia after about 1975, you can coast on that a lot. If I was going to not coast on that and actually make arguments that people listen to, I had to, to get better. Now, I know that many, many black graduate students in that situation, I know, not I've seen it, would have thought that this was racism, that these two guys were giving me trouble because of me being black. But, and you know what? Just maybe, especially with one of them, maybe there's a little of that, but not enough to matter. What they were telling me was what I needed to know to become a linguist worth his salt. And I did become one. I'm not saying I became a genius, but I needed to know what those two people said to me. And um, one of them, I'm going to say, and thank him because I'm in touch with him. Bill Poser, I'm glad that you took me aside. I needed it. The other one, I'm not saying anything about. But I think a lot of people like me of my generation have been trained to think that that was racism. And then you drop out or you just you don't take their advice and you end up getting jobs based on the fact that people want you to fill out some sort of diversity quotient. That's not a good situation. I think in economics, that's less likely. But in in many necks of the woods, that's the sort of thing where that happens. Have you seen students think that getting constructive criticism is racism and pulling away from the field? This is a genuine question. I'm sure it goes on. I can't give you any anecdotal evidence to that effect. I mean, I do criticize my own students. They don't, black students as <laughs> Roland Fryer, the great Roland Fryer was one of my students way back when he was still writing his dissertation at Penn State. And uh, he would come and uh, spend the summer uh, at my uh, shop. I had a little institute at Boston University where I was teaching at that time in the late 90s and the early aughts called the Institute on Race and Social Division. Roland would come and we'd sit up at the blackboard and we'd work through some of these technical problems and stuff. And he'd make mistakes. And I would, I'd say, that was the dumbest thing I ever saw. It's like, come on, what? I just told you, I just told you, come here, can't you solve the problem? You know, I would be really hard on him. I would, you know, and, and, and he chafed a little bit. He jokes about it now. And, you know, at at my uh, 70th birthday party where he did a little stand-up routine, Roland did, he stood up and kind of roasted me, you know, uh, because I was, I was this uh, hard taskmaster, but I don't think he ever thought that I was abusing him. I think he thought I was stealing him to the task at hand, you know, which was, you know, you're black. Everybody's going to think you're second rate. They're going to think you don't know how to dot your eyes and cross your T's and that you can't really look any more deeply than the superficial thing. And, you know, my name's attached to your dissertation, man. I want you to actually know what the fuck you're talking about when you get the hard question in the seminar. I don't want to be, you know, my own reputation diminished by your uh, mediocre performance. So I'm going to be just as hard on you as those guys at Chicago or Harvard or uh, Stanford would be on you when you stood up, give your job talk. They're going to want to know what's behind the epsilon and the delta, and they're going to want to make sure that you understand what you're talking about, that you're command of the literature and that you're in the command of the techniques. Uh, so, I mean, this is from my personal experience. Uh, I can't imagine that there are a lot of graduate students who of color who, when confronted with a hard-nosed, you know, tough uh, prof who said, you didn't get it right. That was ridiculous. That argument was silly. Why don't you actually learn what you're talking about before you come in and waste my time? Would take it as a racial affront uh, and uh, therefore not get the benefit of the challenge and the discipline uh, and the inspiration, if you will, uh, to to uh, be all that they could be. I, yeah. 
I mean, do I dispel the doubts that they have about me because I'm black by performing in a uh, extraordinary manner to the best of my ability to show that I'm up to it? Or do I dismiss those doubts with the back of my hand and a sneer by saying, you people are racist. I'm not, I'm not into the uh, politics of respectability. Uh, I'm not going to try to prove anything to you. F you and your uh, corpus and, and your canon and, and, and your disciplines, uh, you know, doesn't speak to me. I don't see myself in your books. Seems to me that that's a choice that people of color entering into challenging areas of study have to make. Do we elect to grasp the nettle, dispel the doubt of the doubters and perform? Or do we, in a way, retreat from the challenge of performance by rejecting the whole enterprise as being, you know, intrinsically white supremacist? Uh, you know, that's when they get rid of the test for getting into the exam school. Isn't that what they're doing? The, the, in, rather than saying, OK, you have your test. I got my study. I'm going to my study to get ready for your test. When I come out of there, I'm going to kick your test in the butt. That's dispelling anybody's doubt about you. Or do you dismiss the thing altogether by saying that's your test? I don't do well on it. But the reason I don't do well on it is because your test is racist and we need to get rid of your test. When they get rid of the tests, they're basically saying to you, we agree with you. You're not up to the challenge of this test. We agree with you. Let's see if we can't find a place for you nonetheless. We need technicians who write code, and, and we need, I don't know, swagger. Mm. You know? <laughs> we need lawyers who actually can master uh, the challenge of uh, doing the case law and writing the brief. And then we need, I don't know, Passion. Hail, hail fellows well met who can, yeah, passionately sell the firm services and can generate client, uh, whatever, you know, well, I, it's okay if the black people specialize in the, the soft skills because we know that the hard stuff is what we have Asians to do for us. Mm-hmm. I, I, is that know, some, do these people really think that's okay? That's the thing. That's, it seems to me that this whole anti-racist idea these days is, premised on exactly what you're saying, that we're supposed to think that this is the way it's supposed to be. This is Ibram Kendi saying, don't have tests. Instead, you know, evaluate students on the basis of their desire to know. Evaluate students on how much they know about their environment. That's, (laughs) it reminds me of, um, there's an episode of Different Strokes um, with Gary Coleman and Todd Bridges, these little black boys, and they're, they are um, adopted by a white guy, Conrad Bain. In one of the early episodes of Different Strokes, they were making this cute point that these ghetto boys, as they were called then, they were smart too. They just knew about their own environment. And so they had the boys kind of give a quiz to Mr. Drummond. And it turns out, and what the answer to one of the questions was blues, boogie and barrel house. And my mother pointed out, you know, they're too young to actually know what those things are. And I remember <laughs> thinking to myself, yeah, why, how would they know what barrel house is? But still, that was the point that that's what makes them smart. That was like a cute little routine on a charmingly bad sitcom. And yet I get the feeling that that's really what it's supposed to be. That if a kid can, you know, talk about the, the names of the streets in his neighborhood and maybe which ones are dangerous, that that is the equivalent of learning how to code. 
or, you know, learning your cases in Greek. And the code is much more important. You know, I'm talking about little linguistics, but what about the real world? What about lawyering and things like this? We're really in a, we're really in a dangerous place. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think one of the ways this manifests itself is in the emphasis now that's regarded widely as acceptable on subjectivity. A student is to write an essay. The student comes in and says to me, Professor Lowry, is it okay if I talk about my own life experience? To which my answer is, hell no, it's not okay. Well, my lived experience is this. I don't care about your lived experience. What I care about is you finding a half dozen sources uh, in in the literature, uh, books and articles, you fashioning an argument with a thesis and, and with a structure, you justifying your argument based upon those sources, and you're coming to a conclusion that's persuasive, and you have five pages to do it in. I don't want you to tell me about what it felt like to be a black kid uh, who lived in a poor family. That that's mm-hmm. that's not exactly what you came here for. You didn't come here for to be. You came here to learn how to know. Being is not knowing. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know? it's funny. I um, I'm with you on that. Uh, students will ask me, you know, how much I-ness can they use? And it's not only the black ones, but it's, can I put myself in? And I tell them, yeah, talk about adjusting to the modern world. I figure I'm not, I'm not going to pretend it's 1915. I say you could put I-ness in. <laughs> After all, I have I-ness in everything that I write. But I'm told, actually, that even in my academic linguistics work, there's too much I-ness. I was told that a couple of years ago. Interesting. By a white guy. And he said it gently but firmly. You say I too much. And I didn't think he's a racist. I thought, you know what? He's probably right. And it actually seems to put some people off. I need to be less eyeful in my academic writing. I think a lot of me's would say that this person who said this to me was a racist. And I just don't think he was. He was giving me constructive criticism. But I tell the students, yeah, INS is fine, but make a case for me. I said, I don't want to hear about, I wouldn't tell them this, but I don't want to hear about your feelings. You make a lawyerly case for me about something. Teach me something. And I said, it can be about any number of things, including things I don't really care about, but make a case within your I-ness. Don't have it be about your subjective feelings. Yeah, because the subjective feelings, quite simply, are easy. I remember cheating a few times when I was in college and writing some subjective things. I remember thinking in college, I'm black. If I write about you know something that happened to me once, that will get me by. I'm lucky. I can do that. The guy living next door, Mark Badelman, he can't he can't do that. But I, I can do that. And then I can party a little bit more tonight. I'm not accusing other students of doing that on purpose. But I knew that the subjectivity was easy as opposed to stepping outside of yourself and analyzing, which is harder. That's what education is supposed to be. You're, you're being you're being duped. X, you're being led out. Education, not being taught to explore yourself. I remember at Berkeley, one of the African-American studies undergrads said to me quite confidently, and he was thought of as godly. He's got the dreadlocks. He's got a certain sturdy, slightly pissed off demeanor. He's got um, a very (laughs) difficult history. And here he is in this department. Everybody thought he was solid. And he said, well, if I couldn't learn about myself, I wouldn't want to be here. And I didn't say anything because you have to choose your battles. But I remember thinking, no, that's not why I went to college to learn about myself. I already knew about myself. Or if I'm going to learn about myself, it's going to be in various ways that have nothing to do with what I'm going to learn in class. But I thought, hmm, he doesn't want this unless it's about learning about negritude, et cetera. And I thought, this is a different way of being in school. It's a different kind of department, this African-American studies department. And yet he was clearly encouraged in that and thought of as one of the best students. But I will say... I think I'm keeping this person anonymous enough to say I was trying to get him to step outside of himself a little bit in trying to work with him. And I just couldn't 
I just couldn't do it. He didn't want to step outside. He wanted to be reaffirmed in his status as a subaltern, not in education. And yet at this point, I feel like that whole view is, is winning. It's just, and I really want a lot of these people to tell us, what do you think of an education as being? And if you're not going to learn how to code, what is it that you're going to learn how to do? Set up an NGO or something? Because even with that, you're going to have to step outside of yourself to master certain skills. I don't see these questions answered, and I hope that society can engage in one. I suspect that that might be happening. I'm sensing a pushback um, lately against this orthodoxy. I think a lot of it is because we're coming off of our laptops and interacting again. And I'd like to see how that goes. If whiteness is so oppressive, what exactly is the blackness that is now going to rule the world? What is it? And people are going to have conferences where they explore it. But what's going to come out of it? What is what is this this blackness? I'll be interested to see what what it actually is in terms of running a world. Okay, well, stay tuned. Let's Tucker talk about Carlson. something else. Let's talk about Tucker Carlson. <laughs> so uh, what happened? Well, first of all, let me remind viewers that you and I had a conversation last time in which I, the question was, should I engage with Tucker Carlson? Because I had been invited to uh, be interviewed by him and you had your doubts about that, thinking that, uh, well, you can say what your thoughts were. But as I recall, uh, the issue was that I want to be effective in persuading people in the middle of the spectrum. Fox News has a certain uh, taint, a certain stench of uh, Trumpism and reactionary right wing Sean Hannity, uh, Bill O'Reilly uh, 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 political poison. Why would I associate myself with that when it discredits me with people that I might want to persuade? And uh, I wasn't persuaded by your argument uh, and decided to go on. But we put the question to our uh, viewers and listeners, you know, should Glenn go on Substack and, uh, sorry, should Glenn go on Tucker Carlson and got quite a few responses. I did an informal survey. It was almost split down the middle, John. A lot of people saying, yeah, go on. He's got a big audience, you know, et cetera. Other people saying, ah, he's a dummy or, or worse, he's evil. He's, he's a dummy. He's, he's evil. <laughs> You know, uh, don't don't lower yourself or whatever. So I, I went on. Um, well, first of all, there's getting to Tucker Carlson, whose studio is in Western Maine. So, you know, it's uh, my wife, uh, Luana, and I were coming back from visiting the West Coast where I had some work and some family stuff to do in L.A. And flew into Logan Airport. A car was sent to pick us up for the two-hour drive from Logan up to Portland, Maine, which is a very nice town on the uh, Maine coast. It's nice up there. Uh, it's quaint. You know, uh, we, we enjoyed the beautiful hotel that we were put up in. And then a car comes the next morning to drive me another hour and a half into the woods uh, at the, in, the, in the foothills of the mountains in western Maine when I finally get to the compound where is the studio and, and the staff of the production team and the makeup person and the sound engineer and the coordinator and whatnot, because Tucker's empire uh, is housed in a small town in Western Maine. Uh, Carlson comes in. Uh, there were three of us to do uh, uh, Tucker Carlson today, long form interviews, one after the other, after the other, he had it stacked up. Uh, I waited my turn. Uh, I was cordially engaged with a Machiavelli scholar, on one side, and uh, a uh, theoretical physicist who was uh, uh, into climate change science on the other side, and we got to talk with each other, and there was me. 
my turn came. I went in for the interview with Tucker Carlson. It was all shirt sleeves, you know, informal, sitting at a table, uh, very professional studio setup. Um, and we talked. We talked for an hour. I had expected that he was going to be laying traps for me, that he was going to have his own points that he wanted to get across and was going to try to use me as a mouthpiece to give you know, credence to, you know, black professor, Ivy League, uh, Glenn Lowry, you know, distinguished economist agrees with me about X, Y, and Z. And therefore I was going to be a prop. And I was prepared. I was prepared to not be a prop by pushing back and saying, oh, but, oh, but, oh, but. Uh, but he didn't do that. He basically interviewed me in a manner more or less the way that Oprah might have interviewed me, which is to say it was very folksy. He was interested in my life, my early life, uh, education, uh, coming out of Chicago and so forth like that. How did I become as conservative as I am? What happened in the 1980s? What happened in the 1990s and whatnot? Um, and we did get, of course, down the brass tacks. We did talk, and I don't want to say too much. I want people to look at the interview. But we did talk about um, it's behind a paywall at uh, Fox I know everybody is not, not everybody's going to go there, but there are some clips floating around uh, that you can find on YouTube. Maybe you'll be inspired when you see some of these clips. We talked about some political stuff. We talked about uh, the state of the academy, what's going on in the universities and whatnot. Uh, we talked about the uh, political arguments around Black Lives Matter and so forth. Um, we talked about the, uh, and this is something that I explore with Charles Murray next week as well, the growing possibility of white backlash in an age of identity, you know, the, the uh, possibility that not white supremacists, because they're out there and they, they've already got white identity stuff going on. But what about ordinary Joe and Jane, working class white person who doesn't think of themselves, especially as being white until you remind them day in and day out with your critical race theory informed uh, arguments that they are white, that they are supremacists, that they are privileged, that they're whatever. And what happens when they start embracing these uh, notions of racial identity with, with uh, a zeal? Because after all, if we're going to live in a world of racial identities, the largest one of them is going to be white. I mean, it, it amazes me. So Tucker and I agreed about this. It amazes me that people haven't figured this out. They add up, the Chinese and Koreans with the Mexicans and Puerto Ricans with the Nigerian immigrants, with the African-Americans descended from slaves. And they find a number that's bigger than 50% soon enough. And then they declare white people are going to be in a minority. What they haven't figured out is that if white people actually are a race, self-consciously thinking of themselves as a race, they're going to be the largest of the groups by far. Even when they're less than 50%, they're still 45%. Black people are 13% of the population. Latinos are 18% of the population. So do you really want that? And, and we had Tucker and I an extended discussion about why you don't really want to encourage a world in which white people come to think. You say they already do. No, no, they don't. At the fringes, they do. But uh, ordinary Jane and Joe are not walking around thinking about themselves as I'm a white person. And what are white people's interests and so on? 
So we had a spirited discussion, but it was very relaxed. And um, I'm actually happy about it. I've watched the, um, yeah, I paid my $7 to get behind the paywall so I could watch the full uh, interview. And I, I, I think I pulled it off. I think fair-minded people looking at it will say uh, that uh, it was uh, creditable uh, to me to have given that interview and it actually didn't leave Tucker Carlson looking that bad either because he had the wisdom to basically keep his contribution to a minimum and simply let me uh, talk about my life and about my ideas. So I'm, yeah, glad, I'm glad I did it. You sent me some material yesterday, and I must admit I'm, I'm involved in this project that I have to keep secret that involves me listening to this long-lost musical material that I'm not allowed to talk about yet, but I was kind of in a bunker all afternoon yesterday doing that. No worries. But I will say, I will say this. I'm glad that it was constructive. Um, And there really does need to be a pushback against this idea that white people walk around thinking of themselves as white, because this is a major plank in today's anti-racism argument. The book White Fragility is full of it. In both senses of the term. And, you know, I think we've both heard this for a long time, but it's it's really in the ascendant now, this idea that white people are going to defend their interests, that there is this white consciousness. And that's based on no empirical evidence at all. That is, it's a fable. It's a way of looking at things that became popular starting in the mid and late 1960s and maybe had more of a grain or maybe two grains of truth then. But the typical white person is not walking around thinking there are white interests that we must defend. I mean, God bless Deborah Dickerson, but, you know, there were kind of two halves of her. And when she was in her Stokely Carmichael mood, she would say things like white people will give up power only when they choose to. And I, I remember thinking when reading her saying things like that back 20 years ago, I think, no, and that that doesn't represent the kind of thinking of any individual white person that I know, I mean, you have the Klan, you have white nationalist groups, but typically a white cashier, some white human resources coordinator, some white lawyer, some white middle manager at Staples, they're not thinking of themselves as white people who must defend their interests. And if they are, then the burden of proof is upon the people who like to talk that way. It's a story. It's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. It's Homer. It's it, it's a cowboy song. It's just a story. And it makes people feel good to pretend that there's this tribalism among whites in that way. And the problem is, as you're saying, that the way we talk about these things now, we it might be encouraged because of people being made out to be these self-centered, menacing monsters again and again by people who increasingly have power and can therefore keep you away from resources based on reading you as this malevolent person, such as... The uh, Boy, I'm sounding Republican in what I'm about to say, but the new idea that basically a white man can't get a job, that people are now over, overtly saying, this is a job that we must give to a DEI person, to a diverse person, and therefore a white person, especially a white man, simply can't have the job. That's becoming overt at a lot of uh, for schools, for example, which is what I know best. That is going to create a kind of resentment. And a lot of people's answer is, well, that resentment is evidence of racism. And my answer to that is that that kind of analysis is circular and is flabby thinking. Suppose the person actually has has a point because, you know, believe it or not, white people can sometimes have a point. Yeah, I worry. Again, that is a that is a legitimate point. I'm glad you enjoy the interview. All that travel sounds ghastly, to tell you the truth. Boy, I like my house, but 
I'm glad that you feel like it was worth it. And I'll, I'll cough up my $7 next time I have time to sit. It's an hour, right? Yeah. Maybe 50 minutes, something like that. Yeah. Okay. I will, I will do it while I'm cooking. All right. So let's change the subject. Uh, I want to talk about fathers because father's day is approaching. You are a father, two daughters, beautiful daughters. I'm a father of five. I have, uh, all of my children are adults. Um, Three different mothers. I was married twice and one child born out of wedlock. Um, and uh, my father, you know, who passed away in 2018 uh, at the age of 88. Uh, I had occasion in the interview with Tucker to talk about my father because he'd asked me, how did I turn my life around? You know, I was a college dropout and my girlfriend got pregnant. I became a father at the age of 18. I had to go to work in a printing plant and whatnot. At 18, I'm a college dropout working in a factory. Uh, at 33, I'm the first black to get tenure in the economics department at Harvard. That's kind of a remarkable turnaround in 15 years. What happened, asked Tucker, to which my answer was, uh, you know, when I messed up, and my dad didn't say messed up, he said something else. And, <laughs> you know, I had a little scholarship to study mathematics at the Illinois Institute of Technology when I was 16 years old, graduating from high school, you know, because I was a super bright kid, precocious, but I was socially undeveloped, you know, 16, graduating from high school, man, I had never, well, there was a lot of things I hadn't done yet. So, <laughs> so I got to college and I I saw after doing some of those things that I hadn't done yet, you know, including mm-hmm. impregnating uh, Charlene, my uh, the mother of Lisa and Tammy, my first wife, my girlfriend at the time. And so the next thing you know, I've dropped out of college and I'm confronting my father. And he says, you know, you're you're a bright kid. That's very clear. Uh, you can mess up your life again. He didn't say mess up if you want to. Uh, I'm not going to throw any good money after bad. You're on your own from here. Uh, I actually thought you were better than this, but well, we'll see. Uh, and I, I think I spent the next 10 years trying to prove to this guy whom I uh, deeply admired uh, that I was worth a damn. I deeply admired him, a self-made man. He never knew his father, my father. Never knew his father uh, growing up. He met his father when he was already a grown man. Uh, My my father was playing baseball out in the park and he belonged to this league and they would meet every Saturday. And he noticed that there was an older gentleman who would come and sit and watch him play center field in these games on Saturdays. And he suspected that this guy might be his father. And on one particular occasion, he confronted him and he walked over to him and he says, I see you've been watching me. Are you my father? And my father's father, William, William Lowry, L-O-W-R-Y, confessed indeed that he was. And thus began a tortuous relationship between my father, Everett, L-O-U-R-Y, and my grandfather, William, L-O-W-R-Y, because my dad never knew his father, and he resented the fact that he had been abandoned by this man, but he knew that it was important that he maintain a contact so that his children could know who their grandfather was. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father is a self-made man. His mother died when he was 14 years old. He was raised by his grandparents because he didn't know his father. Um, 
he he worked and went to school at night, got a BA in accounting from Roosevelt University, worked and went to school at night and got a law degree from Chicago Kent Law School when he was 32 years old, made a career in the U.S. Civil Service as a tax lawyer, worked his way up the civil service rank to a very high level. Uh, he was in the senior executive service and when he retired at the age of 63, he was the director of the Kansas City Service Center, a massive tax income tax return processing operation with 5,000 employees, and he was a director of it. So he retired as a senior civil servant. He had a very distinguished career. Straight-laced, tough, military discipline, spit and polish, creases in his pants. You open up the closet, every suit is hanging just like that. The pants are over here, the shirt's over here, the ties are over here. You open up the sock drawer. Every pair of socks is perfectly rolled up and regimented in an order, and the underwear are all clean, and there's, you know. Uh, he was exactly the opposite in this respect of my mother, to whom he was married, I don't know, about three or four years before they broke up. My sister's one year younger than me. They had these two kids, me and my sister. Uh, that was a, a match that was destined not to, not to, you know, get to the silver anniversary because my mother... This is like one of those uh, Thomas Mann uh, uh, novels, you know, the German guy, he write about the Hamburg family of straight-laced, disciplined German businessmen and whatnot. And the guy goes south, there's a death in Venice or something like that. He goes south to Italy, you know, to the Mediterranean, and he encounters these swarthy, earthy, you know, the music, the food, the food is all spicy, the women are all spicy, (laughs) the music is all spicy. My mother and father were a little (laughs) bit like that. My mother was the dark-eyed dark haired, you know, Mediterranean beauty. And my father was Mm -hmm. the stick up his butt, straight laced Hamburg German uh, burger. (laughs) Uh, And uh, it was, you know, oil and water and and it didn't quite work. And so I have this in my own background, these two influences of my mother's family who were hard drinking, hard partying, hard screwing, you know, love life, burnt the candle at both ends, you know, could be brilliant people, could be brilliant. My my uncle, my mother's brother, graduated from Morehouse College a year behind Martin Luther King Jr. and graduated from Northwestern University Law School in the early 1950s when Black people simply didn't do that uh, and whatnot. But he also drank himself to death and, you know, a hard living guy. I mean, that that was the way they lived. Uh, And my dad was just the opposite of that. And I wanted him to know that I was capable of putting my nose down and getting something done. And he had that kind of impact on me. Um, Anyway, Tucker gave me a chance to talk about that. And I thought it was a story worth telling here as we approach Father's Day. You know, I, that is self-standing. And um, I would just say briefly, it's funny, just last night when I got home from this secret opera mission that I've been brought into. I uh, had a request. Oddly enough, Masterclass brought me in to do my thing. They had six black thinkers, one of whom is Ms. Hannah Jones, and one of whom is me. At that Masterclass decided to have me speak my piece. Excuse me. Can you just explain what Masterclass is? Masterclass are these these, um, courses that are often taught by celebrities in, in the field that 
they engage in. You have master classes on cooking. You have master classes on meditation. And they decided, I guess in the wake of the racial reckoning, come to think of it, although I didn't think of that until now, they decided to have one on race issues where they have you know, the people with the more traditional views. And then they had me representing less traditional views. And so as part of that in the post-production, last night, one of the producers asked me if I had a photograph of John Hamilton, the order the second. I'm the fifth. The first was a slave. The second wasn't. The third was a cook. The fourth was my father. And then I'm the fifth. And I must admit, it's funny you say this now. It got me thinking about the fatherhood issue because um, my father was a wonderful man. He had a, a, a truly amazing charisma. He could just sit in a room. All the attention was on him. He always said the right thing. He was very funny. I remember even in his 60s at one party, he sat and clearly had the prettiest 20-something girl, if I can call that person a girl, in the room in thrall. She just sat literally at his feet the whole night. He could still he could still do that then. And um, you know, anybody smiles thinking of him. But the truth is, I think it's fair to say he was a thoroughly indifferent father. He was a troubled man. In many ways, he liked, just as I like my liquor, he liked his more. And um, so my primary parent was um, my mother. He, in all of his charisma and in all that he passed on to me in terms of music, in terms of sense of humor, in terms of cultural interests, in terms of the Bugs Bunny, the old songs, the old movies, all that comes from him. But he wasn't really a parent beyond that. He wasn't in a position. He had been married twice before my mother and he had other thoughts and then his father and there there's about one and a half pictures of him um it was the same thing he wasn't around after a while he moved to new york while my father was in philadelphia and there was kind of a surrogate father but i can tell he wasn't really a father father this other guy and then there's only one surviving picture of john mcwater the second and i don't know what his relationship was like to john mcwater the third but it was interesting seeing this picture of this man who lived a life you know, when you when you're somebody who was born in the mid 1800s, you're lucky if anybody knows anything about you. The one thing my father ever said about him was that he was very, very briefly spoken. He said all he ever said was "book," <laughs> and that's all he ever really had to say. So that's speaking about his grandfather, about his grandfather, that he was just a he was South Carolina, apparently liked his liquor in a jug, and he would just kind of sit there and go "book." And I think that's the only living memory of John Hamilton McWhorter II. But I was looking at the picture of him with his wife, Mary, and I was just thinking, yes, yeah, this succession of fatherhoods. And I try very hard to be a, a, a close and attendant father. And part of it is because, you know, I didn't have that. I don't want to repeat what happened with my father and what happened with his. And I think I've, I've got that in hand. I think Dolly and Vanessa are going to know of me as a true dad, despite the fact that I have my own agenda. And, you know, there are times when I need to do my own thing, but I try to not have it be too much. And that's just something that I was thinking about last night as I saw John the second, who now nobody really knows anything about, because, you know, it's pretty unusual to have five in a sequence. I think it's breaking the rules. You're not really supposed to be five unless you're alive when the first one is. And I don't think my family knew that. So they just kept it going anyway, but still it's pretty cool that it's known that the first one was a slave. They know where he was. And then there's me and I didn't have boys and I don't think I'm going to be having any more kids. And so Vanessa is Vanessa Hamilton McWhorter. That's the closest thing to a John Hamilton McWhorter, the sixth that there'll be. And I kind of like it that she looks more like me than Dahlia. So she's the sixth 
John Hamilton McWhorter, except he's Vanessa Hamilton. Now, McWhorter. are there other male uh, descend, uh, ancestors in your family tree uh, who are not John? They were not the first. I assume John Hamilton is the name given to the firstborn. Yeah. Son. Yeah. But uh, no. maybe they had brothers who are Charles or Ronald or whatever. go further back and it's 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 Jerry's and and um Robert's and you know the old the old school names Fred's and things like that. But the, the John Hamilton line was a, a a short line, not the most fertile line with the men. Although my father's sister had nine children. So I've got an awful lot of relatives. But John Hamilton the second was born a slave or not? He was sharecropper. And so I don't even know his dates, but based on, you know, working things out, he would have been born in the 1870s. And, and John Hamilton, the first, as it were. Outside of Atlanta. And he, my sister knows his dates. I'm assuming 1840s, 1850s. Where does the name Atlanta, come from? Where does the name McWhorter come from? Irish, Irish slave owners. And that was common. So he, he took the slave owner's name, your uh, original John Hamilton. That's who McWhorter is. The Hamilton, I don't know. My sister knows more about this than me. I'm surprisingly uninterested in my own genealogy for some reason. I'm always interested in other people's history. I don't know where the Hamilton came from. I need to ask her. Ask me next time we do this and I'll tell you. But McWhorter is immigrants, Irish immigrants, and it's in, in the genetic material too. So you can find it along with some Swedish for some reason, but yeah. Okay. So that's it. So Glenn, I've got to run to school. Understood. So, Understood. To be, to be continued. Um, uh, good to talk to yeah. you, John. Uh, our Thank inaugural you. conversation at Substack. That's glennlowry.substack.com. Not to be confused with John McWhorter.substack.com, which is another. That's different. That's right. Another Substack <laughs> newsletter. You should, of course, subscribe to them both. Do. <laughs> Take care, John. Good to talk to you. Talk to you soon, Glenn. Bye-bye.